we come to the end of uh, Acts 2, the last verse. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 2 and verse 47. We've been looking right through this fascinating chapter. And we come to that phrase. Here we are told the secret of church growth. There's great fascination uh, with this subject then. Books and seminars and conferences and speakers who are considered experts on the subject. Whole departments in theological colleges where you have professors of church growth. They can teach us how churches can grow. And we all desire, oh, we do want then uh, our churches to grow, don't we? And uh, this is one of the first of the summaries of Luke that uh, crop up every few chapters in um, his book of Acts that tell us then how things grow. And that the Lord is the one who adds daily those who are being saved. And this concept of uh, the Lord adding is a very simple one, isn't it? You remember young David, how he challenged the giant Goliath to a combat and to equip himself for the conflict. He went to a brook and he chose a smooth stone and then he added a second stone and then he added a third stone and a fourth and a fifth. And he put them all together in his shepherd's bag. And he looked at the stones in the stream and he chose this one and added it, and he chose that one, and he added it, and he chose another one. And no one believes that somehow the the stones winked at him, or wriggled a bit, or smiled at him in some way, and put themselves forward, showing that they were willing to be chosen. And if some of his brothers had accompanied him then, uh, really nervous for him, because he was going to fight the giant... And they weren't prepared to do that. Well, he didn't ask them for their advice. The fight with Goliath was his. And the choice of appropriate weapons was his. And so it was David alone who chose the stones. What ones he would take, which ones he would take, and which ones he would leave behind. The choice was in his mind. And so it was in his movement. And he took them and he put them And he added them to his bag. And that is precisely what Luke means then when he says that it was the Lord who added to the number of Christians those who were being saved. Each man and woman, each boy and girl in the world is as devoid of any spiritual desire for God as a pebble. There's no spark of spiritual love and life and repentance in the heart of the natural man at all. The natural man is described, in fact, as having a heart of stone. So if we are added to the body of Christ, then it will be because of God's choice of us. He homed in on us. We've just sang these words. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. I was found. By thee. And that's the fundamental biblical posture concerning how a church grows by God adding to the number of believers who are already there. It is not that the leaders of the church decide that they're going to go for growth this year and they're going to recruit and they're going to choose and they're going to reject. 
It is not that they talked together and they said, let's go for a 10% growth figure this year. It's not that they name it and then they claim 10%. God takes the initiative. God shows his power and his love and his mercy. God alone, he adds people to the church. It is his grand prerogative so to do and in that honor none can share. It is his power to do so. What mere man can give life to a heart of stone? Which of us can change one of our children's hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh? God can, and God does. He has mercy. He shows saving power to the utterly incredulous and indifferent and apathetic Little boy, little girl, little teenager. Now, if you have children and you love them deeply and you are under certain circumstances in which you have to give them up for adoption, to which home would you choose to add your children? Well, you say I'd give them to uh, a man and woman I could trust. A man and woman who would raise them properly and teach them the truth. Um, People in whose hands my beloved sons and daughters would be safe so that they would be loved and cared for as I would care for them. But I have to give them up for adoption. You wouldn't give them to bullies. You wouldn't give them to abusive parents, to racists and show-offs and cynics about all that is true and, and, and good and lovely. God takes initiative. And he adds people to homes where he is loved. Where he is honored. To people who will feed his children by green pastures and, and still waters. To say it in the language of Luke from what we've looked at here. He adds his children to those who are continuing steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and the apostles' fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. That is the church to which God adds his own children. And so our duty uh, as a church is to be a godly and confessional congregation, uh, a church to which God can entrust his own children. It's absolutely foundational. It's not the whole story, of course. There's also evangelism and there's gospel preaching. But if if any fruit will come, I must be as holy as a saved sinner can be. I must be one whom the Lord will use. That's my first obligation. God doesn't put his sparkling living water in a rusty cup. And then our leadership and our members must be Christ-like, as Christ-like as they can be. And, and we are all together. We're praying, add to us, Lord. Oh, please add to us. Join people to us. Forgive us that so much of self comes through and so little of thee. Forgive us and have mercy and add to us.
God has the right, doesn't he, to be the one who adds to the body of Christ. If men added, well, they'd go for the beautiful people, wouldn't they? They'd go for the people with Rolls Royces and big mansions and millionaire bank accounts. They would go for big personalities and, and lovely families. They would choose the captain of the rugby club in Aberystwyth. They would choose Miss Aberystwyth in 2015. They would choose those. God chooses the weak things of the world. And the things that are not the nobodies. And so God chooses to bring to naught the things that are. He has mercy on sinners like ourselves. Those are the ones that, that God chooses that no flesh can glory in saying, because I was so good and great and powerful and beautiful and rich, God chose me. He gives them to his son and his son suffers for them. And his son gives his life for them. And his son intercedes for them at the right hand of God. Will all that redeeming love of Jesus Christ for the ones his father has given him be in vain? It cannot be. He said he would lose none of those that his father has given him. So let us say that in our text today this word Lord refers to the Son of God. It refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as often it does in the Acts of the Apostles. So here is the Lord Jesus Christ adding to his people, those who would believe. And he's going to lose none of them. Not one that his father gave him in all eternity. And he said, oh, Father, I'll go for them and I'll live for them and I'll die for them and I'll pray for them and I'll bring them all here where I am forevermore. And that's our only hope. That the Lord would add. That he would do it. Because only he can give a resurrection where there's a dead heart. And only he can, with the power that first said, let there be light, and there was light, shine into dark hearts and shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ there. God can, and God has the right to do it. He's the omnipotent potter. We're clay, aren't we? Doesn't he claim indisputable power? And don't we want the power to be in such loving hands as the hands that suffered for us and died for us? Jesus will not die for us and then fail to regenerate us and fail to keep us. The letter to the Philippians, Paul says, he begins the new work in us. He begins that work and he will perform it. He will complete it. In the day of Christ, he starts it all off. And that's what he did. He added people to the church. He baptizes us by one spirit into one body. Now, this is the first place in the book of Acts, I've said, where there's a summary given by Luke of what God is doing. But there are a number of fascinating statements to the same effect right through this book. 
And always Luke is saying it's the work of God. Chapter 9. We read about the church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And verse 31 says, It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers living in the fear of the Lord. It grew in numbers because it was strengthened by the work of the Holy Spirit. It was encouraged by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so then, oh, what strength it had. And we pray that will happen to us. What congregation do you think the Holy Spirit encourages? Do you think it encourages? Congregations where there's error and heresy, where the blood of Christ is not preached and the book of of God is not believed and the blessed hope is never mentioned. God, the Holy Spirit, encourages those who honor the one he loves to honor and gives glory to. Or again, we are told in um, Acts where the wonderful change took place to the Gentiles, first of all, those who were in the general Cornelius' household. And the whole of the congregation seems to have been converted. And the news was taken by Peter. After he preached to them, he went back to Jerusalem and he told Jerusalem what had happened. And they didn't congratulate and shake hands with the Gentiles and say, well, you've made a wise choice. They didn't say that. Well done, boys. They didn't say that. They said, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Acts eleven eighteen. God had done it. Let's praise God from whom all blessings flow, the blessings of a repentant heart, a new heart, saving faith. God had given it to Gentiles too. This was the promise in the Abrahamic covenant that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed and this is the beginning there in Cornelius' house and it's reached Aberystwyth 2,000 years later. Or again in Antioch when the apostles tell the people the good news about the Lord Jesus and they, they don't have to pressurize them to make decisions. Oh, they want to believe in this wonderful Savior. The Lord is with them. We are told, Acts eleven twenty one, the Lord's hand was with them. Ah, that's it. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Why did many people turn to the Lord? Well, the Lord was shepherding them. Saying, come on now, wake up Sunday morning. You, you come to church. Come on. You come. Put your clothes on. It's still time for you to come. Yes, have, have a cup of tea. And then off to church, half past ten. You be there. The Lord's hand shepherding. And then when we get nervous at the bottom of Alfred Place because uh, we haven't been to church before and will we be welcomed and will we understand it? Come on. God's hand is with us and we're there. And as we sit and as we sing and as we feel at home, God's hand is with us. That's a great reality. We say in our services, oh, may your hand be upon us and on my children and on the visitors and on our friends. Or again, another summary when Paul was in Pisidian Antioch. We read it this morning. Paul and Barnabas were preaching Jesus Christ and the response then was this, Acts 13, 48. 
When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Acts 13, 48. Everyone who was appointed for eternal life believed. And the result was then that uh, the word of the Lord spread through all the region. Disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Ghost. Remember how I read it to you? It all flew on wings from heaven to them. God at work. God appointing who should believe. God adding to the church. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah says to us. He goes. He opens the heart of Lydia. Who were the people who believed in Pisidian Antioch? Well Luke tells us. All who were appointed to eternal life. Who were saved in Jerusalem? Luke tells us. The ones that the Lord added to the church who turned to the Lord. Luke says those on whom the Lord's hand rested. Guiding them. Waking them up. Preparing them. Bringing them to church. Bringing them into the company of Christians. Opening their ears so that they could hear the message of the Christian faith. I'm saying that from God and through God and to God are all things. And that's a foundational reality. What insignificant, impotent, helpless little people we are. And yet he is so great, so loving, so powerful. And so merciful. He will save a company of people more than any man can number. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He will see that they are. He's our God. I've been reading... This uh, fascinating new book, um, You Must Read. And it has there then um, a number, 33 of us have written uh, testimonies in it about uh, what books have changed our lives or we know have changed other people's lives. And one of the men who writes, uh, one of the 33, is Jerry Bridges. And Jerry Bridges works for Navigators, and uh, he's in his 80s now, and, uh, well, he must have sold a million copies of uh, The Pursuit of Holiness. It's a grand book. Many of you got it, little paperback, lovely to read, you'll enjoy reading The Pursuit of Holiness. And... uh, they all tell the story of their pilgrimage, of how they came and how books helped them. When I was 30 years old and in a Christian ministry, a friend asked me to read a small booklet called The Doctrine of Election. I was shocked and deeply offended by its teaching. My reaction was that my friend had got into heresy. I put the book aside without even considering its message. The next day, in an unusual way, the Holy Spirit opened my understanding to see that the doctrine of election is indeed true. And that I was a believer because God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. Shortly after, I left for Europe on a transatlantic passenger ship 
And during the five days voyage, I read through and through the New Testament and I saw the doctrine of election taught repeatedly throughout its pages. Well, he got to Belgium, didn't he? And he worked in Navigators and who was working in, in Belgium at the same time was Alan Levy. And uh, Alan Levy would tell me how he and... Uh, and Jerry Bridges would meet together for lunch with their sandwiches in a park in, uh, in Belgium. And they would talk together and they would go through these thru- truths that were so newly precious to both of them. Anger at the first hearing that it's God who adds to the church is not unusual. A preacher friend of mine named John, he reminisced. I remember a man in one congregation who really disliked me simply because I believed and preached God choosing sinners to be saved. His daughter was converted. He still disliked me. The boy she was dating got converted. The man still didn't like me. I had the joy of marrying this young couple. During the ceremony, I asked them both, do you believe that God in his sovereign purposes chose you for each other? Ah, they nodded warmly and smiled at me and one another. And do you confess that his sovereign plan brought about this event this day? And they smiled and nodded again. And after the service, the father came on to me, livid with anger. He said to me, you can't even perform a wedding ceremony without talking about the sovereignty of God. So here's the Lord Jesus. And he goes on and on. And he adds. He adds. The 3,000. He adds them. Wow. Like an avalanche. And then he adds this stone and that stone and that stone. And he's building. And he's building this living temple. I will build my church. I'll do it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, he says. And God chooses gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and stubble. And he joins and he makes this wonderful building. He does it. The Lord does it. Let me use this illustration. They are building a new bandstand. And uh, in our nocturnal walk on the promenade, Yul and I walk past it and it seems they must be doing something. But it's very, very slow there. It's going to be a certain size. It's going to be a certain shape. It will be what it will be because of the blueprint that was drawn out very carefully. The whole plan of the architect. It is not that the the architect knew about the plumber, that the plumber liked water features and so he put a a fountain in it. Or the electrician liked strobe lighting and so he put that in. And the bricklayer liked white bricks and so he made it of white bricks. Or the roofer liked a thatch roof and so he put that in. Or the builder liked a seven-story building and so he made it seven stories high. And the plasterer liked cornice work, and he put that feature in. And the glazier liked stained glass, and so all the windows were stained glass. And the heating engineer liked wood-burning stoves, and so he put wood-burning stoves in. And the interior designer liked purple curtains, and he put that in. (laughs) It wasn't like that at all. He didn't foresee what each one of them liked, and so because of that he designed it, based on what they loved and wanted. That would be absurd, wouldn't it? You say, Pastor, that building would never stand. The storms that blow here, the thatch roof would be gone soon. 
and the, the windows that were made of, of stained glass, they would soon buckle and break. It couldn't be built. It sounds hideous. It's like a house built on sand. I agree. The bandstand was built, is being built according to a certain shape and according to a certain design and size with materials that have all been chosen by the architect. He designed it. He's planned it to the last nail and the last power point and its position. The contractors and the tradesmen are following the plan of the architect. It is not that he followed their likes and dislikes. And so it is with the church that Jesus Christ builds. It says he's designed it. He's planned it. He'll accomplish what he designed. God didn't need the grace of foreknowledge of what every individual um, believer preferred to design his church. Because then that church would reflect us. Reflect you. I don't want it to reflect you. I don't want it to reflect me. I want it to reflect the Lord Jesus. I want it to be the body of Christ. I want it to be full of his grace and full of his love. I want it to be like him. I want it to be Christ-like. And God has added a billion people since the days of the apostles. A billion people in South America and North America and Korea and China and Zambia and uh, Ghana and Kenya. They will be as many as the sands on the seashore one day. And they will all be changed from one degree of glory to another. They will all, ah, when they see him, every one of them will be like him. That's his design. That's his plan. That everyone is going to be Christ-like. And they all sing in wonder, love and praise, loved with everlasting love. He knew me. He loved me. Everlastingly, he did that. In spite of what we were, he loved me. He was going to make me his holy temple. Instead of all my hopes and my ambitions to be a personnel manager, God had a different plan. And Christians are amazed that the Lord added them. We sing, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and, and rather die than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast, that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perish in our sin. That's, it was the love of God in Jesus Christ that drew us in. Why did he love us like that? We don't know. We have no idea. We are what we are. We can go back to that, to his love for us. But we can't go behind the love to anything more wonderful, more original. In the beginning, he loved us. And he appointed us to have eternal life. All we can ask of God is that he's fair and that he's straight and he's just. When a huge company of angels rebelled against him, all we can ask is that God dealt justly with them. We didn't say, you've got to send them a savior. No, he has to be fair. He has to be straight. That's all we can expect from God. Oh, he's not God at all. If he's not fair and patient and lovely and straight. 
Michael Horton's uh, a professor in, uh, in California, in Escondido. And uh, when he was a teenager, he saw what I'm telling you this morning, and pow, it, it just knocked him out of the saddle. He was overwhelmed when he thought, I'm a Christian because God loved me from all eternity. How wonderful the love of God that he should have saved me in this way. And so he talked with his mother and father who were Christians and uh, he was just absolutely precocious and brilliant. And he talked. They'd had weak biblical teaching on election and it made no impact. And they couldn't see on this precocious adolescent his enthusiasm for it. And uh, Michael says, um, my father would storm out of the room and uh, he reacted viscerally. He was moved in opposition and just walked out of the room when he heard me debating election with my mother. So on one occasion... Michael says, I went outside after him and I I apologized. Sorry, Dad, I said. I shouldn't have made it. I know it offends you. I shouldn't have raised it again. I'm sorry. And he turned to me and there were tears in his eyes. And he said, what if your dad isn't one of the elect? You know, it's so easy to turn gospel into judgment. And this wonderful... Faith-strengthening truth that God had seen the fire on us from eternity and seen our very worst things, but he still loved us and chose us. How wonderful. And we can turn that into a, a doctrine that causes anxiety. Nothing has escaped me. Not my first breath. Not my last breath. Not the thoughts in my mind God knew Everything, the awful imaginations, the dreams, the fantasies, and God still loved me. And said, I'm going to take you to heaven to be with me. Other sheep have I that are not of this flock. Them also I must bring, the Lord Jesus says. Now it's true that in some circles in Holland, for example, God's decree to elect sinners then is not understood as a comforting and an assuring truth, but the very opposite. There are some people who just never come to the Lord's table all their lives. They never miss the service, and they give every mark of being a Christian, but they're afraid. And they have no, no assurance about their election. So how did Michael, what did Michael say to his dad? And his dad said to him, what if I'm not one of the elect? He, he quoted to him John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Dad, have you heard the voice of Jesus? Dad, have you followed him? Uh 
Then this is Jesus' answer to your question. What if I'm not one of the elect? What does Jesus go on to say? I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. And no one will pluck them out of my hand. And his father heard it. And everything changed from that moment on. He understood that point. And election became precious to him. It was now a marvelous comfort. The good shepherd knew all about him and loved him. And he was given eternal life and he would never perish. And he would always say, looking back uh, over the years to that time, remember we had that argument together. That was a turning point, he'd say. A life-changing moment. Now, we don't discover our election by trying to find a trigger that will open the secret things of God. There's not a secret passage which you can walk up and you can enter a room with the book of life and you can check your name. You can't do that. But there's a revealed will that says, come to me. You come to me and I will give you rest. That's what he says. He's saying that to every single one of you Without exception, the youngest child, the coldest heart, the most obdurate, the youngest, he's saying, you come to me. You come to me this morning, and I will give you rest. We'll have the wonderful peace of knowing that God loved us before the foundation of the world. Um, Luke and Paul and Peter, they have this phrase, In Christ. In the beloved. In him. If I have Christ, then I have election. If I have Christ, I am loved with everlasting love. Come and enjoy the rest of trusting in the sovereign God. Obey your sovereign. This sovereign God who says, Sunday morning, Jeff Thomas will preach from a verse at the end of Luke chapter 2, uh, Acts chapter 2, which Luke wrote, which says that God added those who would believe. He added them to the church. God did it. And he brought you here to hear this and to see it and to think, oh, that's why I'm a Christian. That's why I'm a church member. Because God added, added me, even me. And you can never uh, blame God for not adding you because uh, he's inviting you to come today to him. Imagine you're a four-legged sheep caught in a thicket. We'll be going um, to the uh, fraternal, the four of us in the car, uh, Ivan was there with us, and uh, he's got uh, a dozen sheep there in Goginan. So we were going around a bend on Plinliman, and we saw a, a sheep there with its head through the wire fence and uh, eating grass there. And we came back three hours later, and Ivan was looking, and it, the same sheep was there. Its head was caught. And no matter how it bleated and barred, so Luke even said, stop the car, 
stop the car, let's help that sheep. So we walked towards the sheep. The sheep was frantic seeing these men coming towards it and it pulled and pulled and pulled. And it burst free. And it walked a few paces and it ignored us and it just ate grass. Imagine you're stuck. You're cold and hungry and thirsty and your throat is sore from bleating. And the more you struggle, the more the barbed wire cuts into you and causes blood to flow and you'll resign yourself to your pitiful condition, struggling, preparing to die. Then you heard a voice. Not Ivan and not me. And your shepherd, the one who comes in his four-wheeler and he puts out food for you every, every day. And you hear and you bleat, don't you? Bah, bah, you bleat as loudly as you can. I'm here. I'm stuck. You react in that way. If you're caught in a wire fence and you can't get loose, and the harder you struggle, the more you're for, the horns are entangled in the wire. And you're hungry and you're thirsty and you're going to die if you stay there any longer. And if a fox comes in the night... You've got no way to defend yourself. There is a gracious shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Oh, the good shepherd. He's brought you all here today to hear about him, his power and his love. Cry to him, bleat, bah, bah, bleat and bleat to him as loudly as you can. Tell him how sick you are. Sick of your sin sick of being a slave to it. Tell him you're helpless and you need his grace and you need his power. And he'll be at your side in a moment and he'll widen the wire and he'll loosen your head and you can go free again. He'll do that for you. And he'll give you food. And if you're too weak for being there too long, he'll carry you back to the barn to safety. Who won't say... Bah. who will refuse to say bah, bah. who will refuse well those of you who don't think you're trapped in wire and in thickets who think you're free you're free you think and those of you who love your sin more than love Jesus Christ you won't say, bah, help me, help me. Because you love your sin, you don't want to be helped from it. But those of you who know that, and you know how destructive sin is, and how helpless you are, you, oh, you'll cry to him. You'll cry, add me to the living company of the Lord's people. Add me to your church. Make me a real Christian. Make me. You say, are the sheep of I that are not of this flock, them also I must bring. So bring me, I plead that promise. Bring me. So that I can taste the bread of life and drink the water of life. And you will praise him everlastingly for his blood and his spirit and his salvation. Lord, bless your word to us now, we pray. Thank you for adding every one of us added by you to the church 
in different continents and countries and times in our lives we were added. We are what we are. By your grace alone, you ordained us to have eternal life. And why, we don't know why you should love sinners like us. How wonderful your grace. Oh, persuade us all of these realities. Help us not to kick against the goads of loving eternal decrees. Lord, change us and save us. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.